Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Kim and I are here to talk all things wine with you. And how are you today, Kim? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Everything is great today. Great. Let's talk first to our listeners about what did we Google ourselves before we get into the wine topics of the day. So, Kim, what did you research this week? So I wanted to do a little bit of research looking into what were some of the wineries that have been affected by all of these fires in Australia that happened uh, throughout the month of January. So, you know, lots and lots and lots of damage and destruction and acres of land burned, but it doesn't appear that too much of the wine growing area was impacted. That's not to say that these areas don't have vineyards, but that vineyards, vineyard areas under vine weren't uh, necessarily part of the things that got burned. So some of the information that I gathered was that only about 1% of the vineyard acreage was impacted by the fire. But there was one region of Australia that did get hit uh, particularly hard. And that was the Adelaida Hills region, something like a third of their wineries were impacted by the fires. So this is ongoing and we shall see how the country recovers. But as far as impact on wineries, uh, doesn't seem to be the same or a similar situation to uh, what we see in Napa and Sonoma every couple of years. I saw a graphic on comparing the Australian fires to like the fires in California. Do mm-hmm. you see the size difference? Yeah. Unbelievable. It's pretty crazy. Huge, huge, yeah. huge. And um, the animal loss Amazingly huge. And what about yourself for your uh, Googling this week? This week, Kim, you like this because it's a sparkling wine stat. Ooh. The top selling sparkling wines in the United States in US dollars, the top money making sparkling Ooh. wines. So... Give me a guess, Kim. What do you think is the biggest moneymaker sparkling wine in the U.S.? Hopefully, you're going to get one of the five, top five. I would think it would be champagne just because it's a lot more expensive than a lot of the other ones. Am I right? Champagne was sixth. Clico was sixth on the list. Clico. Oh, oh we're talking about Clico. specific, not not Stop. styles, but specific. Yeah, uh, specific brand. I oh, okay. I, I always I always mess these up. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, um, all right, so I figure there has to be a Prosecco in there. So... The leading... Prosecco is the Did Prosecco one. win? Okay. So what is the wow. leading money-making brand Prosecco? Let's see. Would it be Mianetto or maybe La Marca? Those La are the Marca two that come to mind. La Marca is correct. Aha! La Marca, which is owned by Gallo, was number one. That pretty light blue label that really stands out on a shelf. So Italian sparkling was number one. Corbel, California, mm-hmm. sparkling, number two. Cooks, California sparkling, number three. Barefoot, Number four, Andre, number five, Clico, number six, Cupcake was number seven. I'm glad Clico got in there anyway. <laughs> Italy was representative, but a lot of California, lot of California sparkling. sparkling, which is the trend I saw New Year's this year. People the same looking for champagne, buying Andre. So they just want something to celebrate and, and make a noise. There you go. Look at that pop.
Our first topic today on the wonderful world of wine comes from France. Bordeaux drinkers, oh, excuse me, Bordeaux winemakers are now promoting rosé and white wines to young drinkers. This is a French statistic, Kim, Mm. right? What are they drinking? The young drinkers are not drinking reds, so the French winemakers have to adapt, and they're doing whites and rosés. I think this was very interesting because we're seeing this trend in the younger generation of wine drinkers of drinking whites and rosés lighter wines. And it's not just American wine drinkers. This is in other countries as well, this trend towards lighter beverages. And interesting that a region that is known for its big hearty reds is now suddenly like, huh, you know, maybe we need to do something to capture this market segment, uh, because they're, they're just not getting those new drinkers into red Bordeaux. Yeah, the interesting thing, Kim, as well, they were saying the young French drinkers are drinking more before the meal, so they're not wanting those red mm-hmm. with the meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, so it, re- wine is more of a cocktail, is more of a starter, as opposed to your beverage with your meal. Yeah, so they don't want that heavy red Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Give me a quick something uh, to quench my thirst, white yep. or rosé, which you were saying the U.S., they're saying the younger drinkers are not drinking at all. Uh, they have more of a sweet palate, so... This is interesting to look from the perspective of the French youth and what's happening over there. I can imagine that Bordeaux has a a little bit of a harder time with those novice or starter wine drinkers because, I mean, it is a wine that's a bit of an acquired taste. I mean, it's a little hard to get into. It's very dry. It doesn't have those bright fruit characteristics like we like from some of our riper California areas. I mean, yes, it's made from familiar grape varieties. It's mostly Merlot. There's some Cabernet in there too. And those are very popular, powerful wine grapes. But I think that the style is something that takes you a little bit of time to understand and get into. And, you know, Bordeaux has seen other issues as well. They've always tried to be big in the market in China, and they're seeing some slumping sales there. Although with this tariff issue to getting wines into the United States, that may change. So who knows? But had a couple of rough vintages climate-wise, which is not unusual in other parts of France as well. Burgundy's had a couple tough vintages. Bordeaux has. Champagne has. So between dealing with changing consumer trends and the weather and politics and money, all of these play together. And you mentioned trends, Kim. I've heard, you know, where U.S. wine growers, they see certain varietals are trending, so they'll start changing what they're growing to adapt for four years down the road. But I've never really seen European trend like this where they have to look now. This is a country that grows a lot of red grapes. Now, they have to change. And sometimes they're not allowed to change based on where they are. So if you're a producer and they're telling you, the government says you have to grow red grapes where you are, Cab or Merlot, and all of a sudden you have to make white wine. Yeah. What, what do you do? How, you can't adapt to the trend. You're oh. going to make all rosé now? I mean, at of? least in Bordeaux, they have that structure there. So yes, you can grow white and yes, you can make white Bordeaux. But even if you make a white wine in, say, Margot or Julienne, you can't call it that if it's white. That, that Those names are reserved for their red wines. So yes, you can still make it, but it'll end up being more of a declassified wine. You're not going to be able to charge as much money for it. I think that's the big financial oh. impact here is that if you make a bottle of red versus a bottle of white, you're 
going to get a lot less money for that bottle of white. And how many producers you think are really just making domestic? You think it's mm. the huge amount of their volume is that the money's know. to export it? I've never, I've never looked looked into that. I would think the the money would be to export it. Mm. You know, like you're saying now, we don't know with with tariffs, but I mean, I would assume like China would want more of your red Bordeaux. Are you going to now limit your domestic? product because of the trend of the the young people it's maybe it's just one question in a lot of questions where they're seeing this one market segment having different ideas of of what they would like to be drinking and then they need to incorporate that into their overall planning for what they're going to have their their winery and their vineyard do here's my other question kim for you Mm. and i know you've been to france and europe what is the drinking age because when they say young drinker are they talking like the 10 year old kids no 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 no. i think it's 18 so when when they're saying young, they're saying that people are just starting to drink. Yeah, think? so I think that they're probably talking about either late teens or m- more likely probably folks in their twenties. All right, so yeah, so we're not young. talking about ten so year olds here. Well, that's why I'm just you know it's Europe <laughs> verifying here. If they they're saying the kids are getting to the table and they don't want to drink, that's right. Their kids, with- those kids, just don't want that red Bordeaux anymore. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. Mark can be found at franklinliquors.com. And you can find out more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And older episodes of our show can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. So a question that we often get from people who are looking to buy a good bottle of wine is, tell me about the vintage. What is this whole vintage thing? So we wanted to talk a little bit about why vintage matters, what vintage is, and how it impacts the final flavor of the wine in your bottle. I think it's one of those terms, can we use in the wine world and people question, what, you know, mm. what are you talking about when we say vintage? Right? It's so common for us to talk about it because it's just one of those basic things that, that we understand. But I think every once in a while, it's nice to go back and look at these terms and explain them a little bit better to help you, the consumer, uh, understand a little bit more about wine. So let's explain to the listeners, if you see a wine bottle and it has a year on it, it says uh, 2018 Chardonnay, the vintage is 2018, it's the year those grapes were grown. Correct. It's actually the year the grapes were picked. Picked, correct. Yeah. <laughs> Kim, Kim gets Which, me again. Right, well, because... Uh, it's all the same thing when you're talking about us up here in the Northern Hemisphere, but it gets a little tricky when you go uh, down under or to South America, where the beginning of the season might start in one year and then the season ends in another year. It's like sports, right? Yeah. It's easier to think about baseball because baseball is all <laughs> one vintage, but then you think about football and most of the games are played in one year, but the Super Bowl was played in a different year. And, you know, I'm always a little confused, like, all right, what season are we talking about? What year? Uh, but yeah, so vintage is, it's all about... When were those grapes picked? And so for us up here in the north, they're picked in the fall. Southern Hemisphere, they're picked in the spring. But it's all about the timing of the picking of those grapes. So it's uh, 2020 now. The Correct. 2019 harvest in California is just picked. Right. And it's now being made. But in a few months, you'll be seeing 2019 New Zealand. We already are. On the shelf, yeah. right? So that's what I always love when the first vintage, because people are like, well, how do you have yeah, this? Yeah, we're starting even, to see some of those. It just grew, right? They don't So understand. yeah, so when you think about that, it's like, okay, so the 2019 New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was picked in, say, April or March of 2019. And those are not wines that take a long time to make. So say three, four, five months later, they're put in bottle and then they're shipped to us. So by November, December of 2019, we're actually seeing 
2019 New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So that's what's starting to come out now for those fresh, bright, fruity Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand. And we won't see American 2019s until probably June. Yeah, later in the year. So one of the things I think is interesting on vintages, Kim, is a lot of people now, a lot of the brands are not vintage wines. So they blend multiple years into a bottle. So they don't put a vintage, they say non-vintage. So a lot of people really don't, I think, pay attention to the vintage I've only when they seen should. a couple of, vin- of non-vintage still wines. You see this all oh, yeah, the time for yeah. sparkling wines, yeah, there's but a lot, there are more out there A lot there of now? big brands, oh, no, no vintage. If you look, you you, you won't find it. Mm-hmm. Well, technology has gotten so much better so that wines can be held back at the wineries and used for blending multiple vintage wines without those wines having gone bad in the first place. So it's nice that we, we get to see fresh wines maybe from other vintages. And sometimes that blending does give you a more consistent wine across time. And it makes a difference to the vintage because things are happening. For the 2018 growing season was probably different than the 2019 growing season. So they have these things called vintage charts, which we've talked about in the past. Do you use a vintage chart at all? Kim? I do sometimes, um, not as much as I used to. So all the major wine magazines, they come out with a chart every year, updated based on the region. And they tell you the vintage, the region, the grape, and then it tells you if you should be holding it, you should be drinking it. If and they rate the year, vintage year of rating. So if it was a good vintage year, it'll it'll rate it say ninety five, and that would typically mean that the wine is better quality in that year so mm-hmm. that plays a part when you find an old bottle in your house and it has a vintage year you can go to these charts look it up and see if it's was a good vintage year and then if it's still ready to drink or past uh, its peak or not so they're right. useful tools yeah so all of it comes down to what was the weather doing in that particular year because there can be variation of course from one year to the next we know that just by looking out the window that every year is slightly different and there are a lot of factors that go into making one year different from another so some of it will have to do with rainfall so how much rain does a particular area get but not only how much but when so most wine growing regions prefer to have their rain taken care of in the wintertime while the plant is dormant and then you don't get it during those times of the year where you're actually trying to ripen your grapes. So when rain falls and how much they get is important. The temperature is important, but again, when certain temperature spikes happen um, are also important. So you need to think about the spring and the summer and the fall. So those come into play. Was there frost in the spring or in the fall? Did anything detrimental happen to the vineyard, like a hailstorm that maybe damaged some of the vines, and that's especially a problem in the spring. And then how quickly did the season change? Did you have a slow spring into a slowly starting summer, or did you have, bam, heat spikes that hit all of a sudden? So all of those factors will will go into the personality of that particular vintage. And really what it leads to is what are the particular flavors in those grapes, and how is that going to be translated into wine, and then how ageable will that wine be? How long will it be able to stay fresh and delicious or change its flavors in that bottle? A lot of questions I get, Kim, on on vintage is how does it like play a role in the wine? Mm -hmm. And I think the way I like to describe it, and I'm sure you're going to disagree with me on this, but I compare it to if it's a small brand, a true wine grower, you know, a small farm who's growing grapes and making wine, he has a great year, 
his he puts out a, a wine. The next year, say something happens, like you said, some something during harvest or he doesn't get the right fruit set. He's still going to make wine with what he gets for a crop. So, But the flavor might change because the grapes weren't the same as the previous mm-hmm. year. So a lot of times people say, well, I had that wine, then I bought it again, and I didn't like it. Well, the chances are it's because something happened in that vintage year, and he had to make the wine with that fruit. Right. So I always compare it to, you don't get that variation, vintage variation, on the bigger brands. It's, it's always the same style. And the smaller guys, you take a chance on that variation. So if you like something, make sure you ask for the same vintage when you go to get it again, because they change. And I've seen them change. I've had wines where I tried, and I love them. I order again. I notice the vintage has changed. I try it totally different. Mm -hmm. Go to the spec sheet and there's changes. Source different fruit, different percentages of the grapes. So it does matter. And I think that that's a a philosophical sort of question when it comes to wine drinking. Are you looking for something that will be consistent time and time and time again? Or are you open to the idea of, hey, this is a product that does change? And that's kind of, I think, where a little bit of the magic is when it comes to wine. It's like, yes, maybe I found this particular producer that I really like. And one vintage, her wines taste like this. And then another vintage, they're slightly different. And different doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just might be this this vintage was a little riper, so there's a little bit more fruitiness. But then this other year, oh, it changed a little bit. It's more minerality, but I like it better, even if other people like the fruitier style. So it's a lot of it is finding your particular style. And if you even want to go down that road of trying those wines that maybe do have that variability from year to year. Has it happened to you, Kim? I know you have certain brands you love. Have you ever said, wow, this, you know, I don't remember it having this flavor mm-hmm. or this being this way or this much acid or oh yeah i feel like that happens to me a little bit more with the european wines than with the california wines california vintages are way more consistent because the weather is way more consistent so you you do get more of a similarity from vintage to vintage for california wines and i I find this more often in french wines than i do really anywhere else see i think that was your way of being politically back to my point but i'll figure it out someday Kim. how how are you replying it's the truth (laughs) so on that point about having something and it changed. I've had it happen a few times to me where I taste the brand and I love it. And I'm amazed at the quality for the for the price mm-hmm. point. And then it runs out because I recommend it, people buy it. And then I get it again and I taste it and I'm like, what happened here? What, was I crazy? And then I look and the vintage changed mm-hmm. and I get disappointed. Yeah, that can definitely be disappointing. I mean, sometimes you find that you're pleasantly surprised. You like a wine and then the vintage changes and you change it again and you're like, oh, this is even better than I remember it. So sometimes that that happens too. So I think that it's good to keep an open mind. But the idea for people of trying to remember what was a good vintage and oh, this particular area was good this year, but not this year is very daunting. And I think that this is something that can sometimes get in the way of people's enjoyment of wine. It's like you feel like, oh, there's there's all this stuff I have to think about and I have to remember, was this a good year? Was this a bad year? Overall, wine has gotten better and better and will continue to get better and better because even though weather might change from vintage to vintage, wine making has also gotten better and technology that we use in the vineyards has also gotten better. So there are ways to combat hail damage and there are things that 
grape growers do to try to, you know, mitigate during a particular hot spell. So chances are, if you've liked a wine, you will continue to like that wine from that particular producer, but it just might be slightly different. And again, different doesn't necessarily have to mean worse, but keep an open mind and, you know, continue to to try those wines. Here's something else Mm. I do, Kim, I have to ask you about. Mm. So I taste the wine with the sales rep. I order the wine. The wine gets shipped and it's a different vintage. And, oh, I, ref- so and I refuse it. Mm-hmm. So then they question me, why? You know, why? Like, first off, I get mad that the people selling the wine don't understand why I would send it back if it's changed. My question to you is, in the restaurant business, you make wine lists way in advance. When you change the li- when you then take the product in and the vintage changes, do you accept it or do you reject it? We generally do not. Um, do not accept do it? Do not accept it. We try to stick as closely as we can to those wine lists because those were the vintages that we tasted. And we only change our wine lists twice a year. And we do all of uh, the choosing of the wines for the wine list by blind tasting. So we, we taste everything before we decide to put it on the wine list. And we are very specific about, yes, this is the vintage of the wine that we tasted. So Therefore, that's the wine that we want on the wine list. And usually that's what leads to allocation. So if you had a 2017 Cabernet you love for your list, and then I wanted to get that, they usually would say, if it's a low amount, they would say, no, we got to save it for Kim's right. restaurant because she wants that on her list. So. Right. Because we want to keep that consistency because uh, we can't be reprinting wine lists all the time. <laughs> well, it's good to hear you have the same you know, mentality as far as yeah. that. So I, I just baffled at people that are in the wine business who don't think it's a problem. Yeah, that's sort of surprising. And I mean, and I hear from consumers all the time, you know, and especially with higher end things. Somebody is at a dinner and we taste a wine and they want to buy it. It's our responsibility to make sure that the wine that they get is the wine that they tasted. And and I feel very strongly about that, whether it's just somebody sitting at the bar and they order a glass of wine, we want to give them that wine that's on the list. If we say it's 2017, we want to make sure they're getting 2017 because we know specifically how that wine tastes. Which means your wine list, the vintages that are are on the list are always current. As best you as up, we can. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I've seen you go to a restaurant and the, you know, it's 2005 Chardonnay on the list. So they never update it. They <laughs> like, never, I really hope well, they not. they don't put vintages because they don't want to update right. and it. Some so. rest, and some restaurants will do that. And and I actually think that that's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting way of dealing with it. In one regard, it is very smart because then you don't have to keep on reprinting. But then on, from the consumer side, it's like, well, the consu- that consumer might want to know what that vintage is. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about a story that was in drinkbusiness.com about heat waves in the Champagne region in the 2019 vintage year. It's funny first, Kim, how these sparkling stories all appear in our things to talk about because <laughs> you being the like, sparkling you know, person. We love all. I love my bubbles. So they're saying the harvest in 2019 in the Champagne region of France was down 20% this year. And I know, Kim, you were out there just after harvest, right, this yeah. year? Did yeah, they we were there mention in November. this when you were there? Um, we didn't talk too much about vintage size. A couple of the places that we went to there were a lot of conversations about climate we had we definitely had conversations about that this was a warmer summer because there was a heat wave but i don't really think we talked about numbers so speaking of numbers the french government tells these champagne producers how much 
the maximum they can grow, right. basically. So they have so many acres of land. Within those acres of land, they are allowed to get so much uh, vines growing in, on those acres. And they were saying because of this uh, 20% down, they, they were like 5% lower mm-hmm. in in the growing of the grapes right. too, right? So And they, they set how much they can charge for them. And there are all of these uh, rules that they have to follow. So what happens, Kim? Tell our listeners, if it's a bad harvest, what happens to the grapes in Champagne? Why it, it, it really hurts production? So Champagne is the most northern uh, grape growing fine wine region in France. And it's generally pretty cool there. It's not a place that gets like really hot summers. It's not it's not Tuscany. It's not the Mediterranean coast. You know, it's pretty cold up there. So traditionally, Champagne has developed as a style of wine that takes advantage of this cool climate. So when you think about Champagne, you think that it's light and it's crisp and it's dry and those bubbles help, but it's generally lower in alcohol and and it has all of the characteristics of a cooler climate wine. It needs that brightness and that zip to it. So when you have a warmer vintage, the grapes get riper than they usually usually would in, in this traditional growing area. So when you have riper grapes, you have more fruity flavors and you have lower acidity. So it just changes the character of the flavor in the wine because you have much riper fruit uh, and much fruitier juice to work with. Would you say that the Champagne region can adapt a little bit more to this type of problem because uh, they can add some sugar when, they, when they're when they doing a dosage or something yeah. to correct the problem. And I feel like because they're on the limit of where you can grow grapes, you know, even if they get slightly warmer, it's not going to be a tipping point of, oh, we can't make wine here anymore. It's just a matter of, oh, the style of the wine is changing. So I think because they're on the outer limits of wine production anyway, being able to adapt is thing that, that they'll just have to do. Um, but it'll probably be a little bit easier than say in a place where, oh, now we can't make wine anymore because it's just too hot. There was another story, keeping with the climate change, there was another story related to this, which was in National Geographic about climate change is affecting the flavor of French wine. And it looked at some pretty amazing stats. They looked at temps going back to like the 1300s. And since that time, they feel harvests are moving up like two weeks earlier Significantly, now. yeah. So that greatly affects the fruit that's being produced right. in France. Because so. a lot of these winemaking areas have been doing it for so long and they keep really good records. So they literally have records as to when did they start harvesting the grapes back like 700 years. So over all this time, they've been able to keep track of when harvest traditionally took place over overall. And now we're seeing that harvest is typically about two weeks earlier than, than it ever had been before. So we've always said that grapevines and vineyards are a great indicator of when things are, are going on in the climate. And this is just another indicator of that. Our listeners are probably saying climate change story. I know. It's the world of wine. And this is what winemakers talk are talking about, though. When when I was in France, this was a topic of conversation that we literally heard every single stop that we made. Every winemaker and every grape grower is talking about how climate is different now than it ever was before. So it's a real, real worry. And it's a real topic of conversation people in the wine world are having. And I'm sure we'll talk many more times about sure a climate story this year.
Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, where you can leave us your questions and your comments. And older episodes can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.